I'm really glad to be here again, especially in the company of somebody whom not I only highly appreciate, but also view with fear. Because, you know, I'm doing my theory of psychoanalysis, and my God, it's like a monster, you know. You really do it with real people, <laughs> you know. And now I really mean it, what I will say now. I am not a practicing psychoanalyst. For the whole series of reasons, one is the obvious one. To all who know me, can you really imagine me sitting uh, near a guy for more than half a minute and not interrupt him by myself <laughs> talking. The other reason, much more interesting, theoretically, maybe it has a minimal clinical interest, is that it's too much responsibility. When you have somebody, I imagine, who is in real psychic crisis, then I would be under this and I would like to ask you, it's a very practical question, maybe even boring to you, like, how do you deal? There are moments when you must be aware that one wrong word from you can have catastrophic consequences. One right word, maybe, maybe not, can save the situation. How do you react in such a situation? I would be afraid of such situations. It's too much responsibility. Uh, but the reason I am nonetheless referring so much to psychoanalysis is simply that I do not only find it theoretically extremely, not only useful, it's too vulgar to say this, but indispensable if we want to orient ourselves in contemporary philosophy. We need the legacy of psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis for me is not just a particular science of a particular uh, domain of psychic troubles and so on and so on. As Freud made it clear, in a way repeating almost Marx, in the same sense that Marx claimed that crises of capitalism are not contingent excesses but key to understanding capitalism, the moment of excess, the moment when a system fails, is the key to understanding the system. And Freud made clearly the same point. Psychic breakdown troubles are not deviations simply of some normality, but are the key to understanding a human person. The other thing, reason that I appreciate this link of cl clinical practice with theory is that, as already Freud made it clear when he claims that psychoanalysis is one of the impossible professions. Namely, Freud says there that psychoanalysis would have been, as a clinical practice, fully possible only in a situation where it would no longer be needed. So I think there is a very subtle dialectical relationship between theory and Practice. Theory is not simply instrumental in the sense of uh, providing a theory, explanation, advices for the praxis. Practice. Psychoanalytic theory also explains why practice ultimately fails. 
I'm not here a pessimist. What I'm saying, and that's the nice paradox, is that the greatness of psychoanalysis, here psychoanalysis is really Hegelian, is that all the obstacle failures that it faces, it turns them into the very instrument of psychoanalytic treatment, like transference or the... Psychoanalysis basically is an analysis of the obstacles to its progress. So, uh, I also think, but I will not go into it today, that uh, psychoanalysis is not, if you take it seriously, it's not simply an objective knowledge, you know, like biology talks about that, psychoanalysis about that. It involves a basic fundamental, I don't know how to put it, I will use fashionable words, uh, subjective experience. It's not an objective theory. It's something that, if you are really in it, even the theory has to change you subjectively. So, my esteemed colleague here, with all my, with all my curiosity, I would just like now to present briefly outline three, four fields, and I wonder how you, again, sorry for repeating my bad jokes, real guy dealing with real people in trouble, how do you feel, no, I hate the term feel, how do you experience this in your clinical practice, with your broad experience? Uh, uh, the first reproach is... No, the first, the standard reproach in our postmodern, postfeminist, whatever you call it, uh, commonplace, is that psychoanalysis is historically dated and that it involves a certain hidden heterosexual, patriarchal, or whatever normativity. For example, the standard reproach is that the way at least the majority of psychoanalysts treat transgender, homosexuality, and so on and so on, even if they tolerate it, they uh, treat it as a tolerable exception, failure, whatever. I, of course, violently disagree with it. The way I see it, the psychoanalytic view of sexuality is precisely that any normativity ultimately always Face. So, uh, on the other hand, I think that the retreat into pure historicism is also wrong. The idea is that uh, you just have to find your truth in different cultures, it's different. This joke I heard, maybe this will be interesting even to you in Argentina. They told me that in United States, when psychoanalysis exploded, German immigrants arriving there in the 30s, to be heterosexual and faithful to your wife, if you are a man, was considered normal. Because, you know, you must know this better than me. The big decision which concerns interpretation and power in psychoanalysis is when is something to be treated as a symptom to be interpreted. Like, oh my God, this is... So, uh, uh, the idea was that for those from the 30s, most of them classical German-American psychoanalysts, if you are faithful to your wife, just doing it with her and vice versa, it's okay, nothing to interpret. If you or your wife jump around, ah, what are you escaping from, trauma, and so on. The Argentinian joke, and I love it, was that 
With them, it's the opposite. <laughs> if you are faithful to your wife, it means, what's this? It's a maternal fixation, something is wrong with you. But again, I think that both versions, somehow spontaneously, this non-historical normativity, Freud is, descri- Freud is describing a certain normative process which is the way we become fully human, all other versions are failures, should be rejected, but also this all-too-easy historicity, like anything goes just to make you happy. If anything, the lesson of Freud for me is precisely And Freud says it when he says that, except anxiety, emotions basically lie. And that's my problem. Now I'm coming to the second feature uh, topic already. All this ongoing undermining of so-called normative heterosexuality embodied by the terms LGBT, lesbian, transgender, and so on and so on today. This, as maybe some of you know, brought me a lot of trouble. And not a problem for me. But uh, what I want to say is this. uh, That uh, uh, we fully supporting unambiguously the goals of uh, LGBT movement and so on. And I also fully accept that one should not develop, treat them as a kind of a minority which somehow failed to adopt our norms, but we should nonetheless, with our tolerance, uh, treat them kindly, and so on, and so on. So, I wonder, again, I'm making an abstract theoretical point, how would you react to this? The problems I have, not with LGBT as such, but with concrete versions of it which are at least predominant in the United States is this one. Sometime I, what I find so suspicious is that while they are so much against binary logic, normativity and so on, but they have this, the predominant version in the United States, terrible tendency to impose a new classificatory order, a new Normativity. For example, I think I even mentioned this here one of the previous times. Even some state organ of the state of New York in the United States even proposed a classification of 32 sexual or gender positions. Male, female, but then bisexual, trisexual, multisexual, asexual, butch, and so on. And... Uh, you know, I think this is a tragic misunderstanding because it's as if, okay, we feel oppressed by, we cannot clearly identify, I understand this, with the main sexual binary opposition, but it's as if, if we just expand it enough so that each of us can find a slot, then each of us will be satisfied, you know. Like, I have my slot. No, I think that If we take Freud seriously, all the topic of unease, unbehagen in culture and so on, sexuality as such prohibits this. This is what Jacques Lacan means, I simplify it very much now of course, when he says, il n'y a pas de rapport sexuel, there is no sexual relationship. Which means that precisely sexuality as such undermines normativity. And also, this is why sexual difference 
for me, in my Lacanian perspective, is not simply a normative order. And then we have to open it up to plurality of positions and so on and so on. Of course, we should do this. But now I come to my second reproach. Things are here terribly serious. For example, I almost had to laugh when in one of the but very strong versions of LGBT in the United States, the idea is under the false, she disagrees with it privately, influence of Judith Butler, that uh, we should treat gender identity as just a free play of performative enactment, ironic repetition, reconstruction, and so on and so on. I don't think, I don't think it's so playful. Take a Classical example, Chelsea Manning, a man who was, in the primitive sense, who was entrapped in male body, but identified psychologically as a woman. This is not a playful position, oh, today I'm gay, tomorrow I'm dead. He, can you imagine how he suffered, how much pain he was or she ready to endure to change his Sex. So my point is this one, that uh, even if ultimately, yes, it's not prescribed in nature, our sexual identity, we choose it. But this choice is a very radical choice which defines who we are, our personality. It's not this playing the games, you know. Today I'm gay, tomorrow I participate in a, participate in a bisexual orgy and so on and so on. So to be as aggressive as possible, with all my absolute support for LGBT. My fear is that a certain version, this playful pseudo-Delesian version, we play with different identities, fixed role, are oppressive and so on, it fits perfectly the predominant late capitalist ideology. Today, ideology is not telling us be a good father, patriarchal role. It's kind of a, I call it ironically, Western Buddhism, which is the common message. Like, be truly yourself, realize your potentials, don't get too fixed, or as they say, Yoda and all those jerks in Star Wars, uh, 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 don't get too attached to any objects and so on. That's ideology today. Let me conclude nonetheless. The next point would be uh, historicity of psychoanalysis. Namely, one of the standard criticisms is that this disgusting patronizing attitude, it was good for Freud's time with all the Victorian oppression and so on, but today we live in permissive times, problems are totally different. Again, I wonder how you experience this because for me at my abstract theoretical level. It's absolutely clear first, it's not true that Victorian times were in this sense oppressive. They were doing dirty things, maybe even more than today, just in a different way. It's a standard topic. Do you know that in London, around 1900, just when Victoria died, there was the greatest number of prostitutes per capita in the history of humanity, with the possible exception of Vatican, of course, in medieval times, that's always, no? So, and on the other hand, I wonder how you would react to this. The way I see it, Freud's problem is never simply, 
I want to enjoy sex or whatever, but unfortunately, I internalize some paternal or social prohibitions, and the function of the analyst is to allow me to get rid of these prohibitions so I can easily, so I can do it. No. Freud's much more subtle problem is, it's not I have an oppressive father, I cannot make love. If any of you know it, I know from my own miserable experience. My father was a nightmare. I can say this because he's dead. Because uh, he precisely, you know, from when I was 14, uh, 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 solicited him, like, did you already sleep with a girl? Would you like me to show how the blah, blah, blah? He rendered me totally impotent for a couple of years, you know. There is nothing worse than this type of... Uh, of permissive, pseudo-permissive father, and so on. So, first, the enigma of psychoanalysis is not, I cannot do it because I internalize prohibitions, uh, but almost, I would say, the opposite. Precisely when the road is open, the effect can be debilitating. That's why today, in our permissive era, we have more frigidity and impotence probably than, than ever. So uh, again, here I think, only today, for in Freud's time it was still possible to read psychoanalysis in this simplistic way. We have a certain healthy tendency to enjoy, let's get rid of prohibitions and then we will fully enjoy. But it's only today when we are confronting the deadlocks of of permissivity that Freud's time is really arriving. And don't be afraid, I apologize, just the final point. So when people claim psychoanalysis is outdated, there is the final argument against it in two words, brain sciences. Brain sciences. Like the idea is, okay, that was all some non-serious speculation. Today we more or less know what really goes on in our inner lives. How it's all really just new neuronal processes and so on and so on. And you know that a joke quoted by Freud about the borrowed kettle, where to 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 uh, destroy a certain argument, you use three counter arguments which each of them is okay, but they tend to contradict each other. You know, the classical story, first I never borrowed a kettle from you, then the kettle was already broken when I borrowed it from you, and so on. Uh, isn't it simple here, I noticed? The majority of psychoanalysts defend the actuality of their image by listening a series, by listing a series of arguments which are self, first they claim, First, they claim that the results of brain sciences are not conclusive. It still is very much in the air. It's not that they simply know how our brain works and so on. Their second argument is they concede this point, but they claim it's ultimately irrelevant. This is what I call in philosophical terms transcendental argument. You may describe, know how my brain works, but you cannot in this way affect how I experience a situation. Even if I learn that I don't have personal freedom, that it's all neuronal process, still I have to subjectivize this. Uh, enter in a certain attitude towards it, and so on. And here, psychoanalysis have, has a place, and then we have the third position, which is 
the desperate last surrender. Yes, brain sciences are right, but ultimately they confirm psychoanalysis. They really amount to the same. I think that all these three ways out are way too easy. That we should first confront the problem, what we really learn from brain sciences. And like we should simply, in very naive terms, confront this problem. Are they right in the sense of we are just neural mechanisms, there is no freedom, and so on and so on. From here to, of course, and the possible limits of this neural machinery model of brain. And then there are the obvious political questions, of course. What does it mean if some institutions will be able to, in this way, regulate, control our mind, and so on? Here, I often uh, uh, deal with this topic, uh, how, what they already can do. All the time, uh, friends are sending me uh, results. You know how even Stephen Hawking, I was told, he no longer needs his finger. His brain is directly wired, he just thinks chair moves forward, his chair moves forward. The problem is if it goes out, it also goes in, how you can be controlled and so on. So uh, all these problems, again, we should confront them. And with this I will conclude, just adding, for example, one idea came to me and I spoke with some of my brain scientist friends and I find it fascinating. Uh, I'm sorry if I repeat a joke which probably already repeated here and I find it again really fascinating. You know there is a joke that I repeated I would say not too often just about five, six times in my books. Uh, uh, the scene from Ernst Lubitsch Ninochka. You hear a joke there where a guy enters um, uh, a cafeteria and says can I get coffee but without cream please. And the guy, the waiter answers, sorry sir, we don't have cream, we only have milk. So I cannot give you coffee without cream, I can only give you coffee without milk. You see what's the paradox? It's a very Hegelian lesson that the negative determination, the negative feature is also part of the identity of an object. Although they are materially the same, but coffee without milk it's not the same as coffee without cream. And I think that precisely in psychoanalysis, when you have the topic of oppression, allusion, and so on, this difference is crucial. So I just wonder, and I didn't get a definitive answer from my brain sciences friends, a computer can do whatever you want, or digital machinery, but can it distinguish three kinds of coffee? which is materially the same. Coffee as such, just black coffee, coffee without cream, coffee without milk. I claim that just maybe here is a hope for us that for a machine they are simply, for a machine they are simply the same. Because again, what nonetheless the challenge of brain sciences confronts us with is how when Freud talks about the unconscious, he means something much more paradoxical than it may appear. It's not simply something that goes at some deep instinctual level that goes on in our, uh, in our uh, brains and so on and so on. That's why, just to return for a second, then you have, uh, to LGBT, for example, 
the last tech pro LGBT text that I read. You know what shocked me? How all of it, one verb was repeated again and again, feel. The ultimate argument was how I feel. I feel oppressed. And my God, haven't these guys heard about Freud? <laughs> Feeling is not automatically authentic. And that's the danger of exclusive reference of feeling. American neocons, we should learn from them. Basically, their argument is, yes, you feel this, but sorry, we feel differently. For example, when a black person comes too close to me, I feel disgusted. Why is your feeling better than mine? The moment, I agree, not with them, but it's not the same feeling. But for this, to decide this, why, if I say I feel that I have to uh, uh, fight for the rights of the black people. And my friend tells me, sorry, but I feel disgust when I'm too close to black people. No, it's not just feeling against feeling. Some other dimension is needed. This is, I think, the problem of identity politics. I'm really sorry I spoke too much, but now, please, the field is yours. Why don't we start with the last point? Because I, I completely agree about the thing about feeling. Um, because I think sometimes my experience as a clinician is people will say, you, you make an interpretation to them which is painful or something, and they will say, but I feel. And what that means is exactly as you pointed out about the racist friend, is I don't want to think about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a feel, definition. Feeling yeah. means, I feel means I don't want to think. I don't think. want to think, yeah. and I don't want to, and it's a way of stopping interpretation, stopping the analysis. Mm. Should we, like the points that you made, should we talk about those a little bit, the, um, the brain science and historicism, and then talk more? Yeah, but you talk. I can ask. Right. I will. Yeah, yeah. I will, with pleasure. <laughs> I mean, the, just to take the last thing about brain science. Um, I don't think any, I certainly, as a, a clinician seeing patients, how, I don't see how anyone could object to all the developments in brain science. Yeah. That has to be a great thing. And it has to be a great thing, all the developments in uh, things that we're learning about uh, cognitive psychology as well. But I think you're right to think that uh, maybe the, I mean, you laid out a number of different counter-arguments, but one of the things is that maybe the ends of analysis are not the ends of neuroscience, that what we're, where we're going is not to the same place. Um, because of the things that you were mentioning, most importantly the unconscious, that we are beings that are deprived of direct access to ourselves, yeah. that we don't know our desires. But this, the, this ourselves, it's not the neuronal ourselves. No, That's it isn't. Yeah. It isn't. And it's an ourself that goes all the way back to Sophocles and Shakespeare. It comes up through literature to, to contemporary times. I thought the other thing, um, I'm going backwards through them, but the LGBT thing was also very, very important. Um, and you raise a, a, a really, I think, serious point that about the normative nature of analysis that we don't know sometimes and what was right in Argentina wasn't right in Germany. And how do we make an interpretation? I try to teach my students, and I also try to keep in mind the violence of interpretation, that it is a huge imposition at times, and you have to be extraordinarily careful about what you say to a patient. 
And often, of course, the patient is, if you're listening carefully, teaching you something very important about um, the, the, the medical or the, 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 the culture of sexuality that we're in. I'm thinking about a patient I had many, many years ago who was female to male transsexual. Technically, yeah. surgically. Well, no, she was a woman who wanted to become a man and had been going along in a very certain sort of way with the surgeons at uh, the gender clinic at Charing Cross Hospital and reached a point where they had reached an impasse. Uh, they wanted to perform the, the next stage, which was a mastectomy. Mm-hmm. And she couldn't understand why she couldn't be a man with breasts. Um, and it actually was quite interesting because it became clearer that their notion of femininity, this was quite a long time ago, was Marilyn Monroe. It wasn't, wasn't the women that I knew. It was all Rita Hayworth. It was all... They had a very particular notion of what it was uh, for a woman, for a man to become a woman, and a very clear idea of what it was for a woman to be a man. And in a way, she was raising questions about, normatively about what, you know, what, what she felt what was What then, if it wasn't uh, without breasts to be, what then was her idea of implicit of man and woman? She didn't, I mean, I think this is more accepted now, and I can think of, um, you know, a number of books recently, but where the notion of sexual identity wasn't as fixed, uh, I don't think it's as fixed now as it was then. They very clearly wanted her to be a very particular kind of man, just as they wanted the men who were coming to be a very particular kind of woman. And really what the, the role of the analysis was, or the therapy was, was to kind of listen with her. But you're absolutely right that... Um, these things aren't as, as set uh, and the, the damage you can do if you are siding with uh, because it, what she came because she was really felt being driven crazy by the, the demands of the, the clinic I thought the, and that goes to the very first thing that you said really about dealing with real people and you know you, you say one word or it, I think um, how do you manage this? Well, I was going to say... Did uh, you ever... Sorry. Do you ever do something that you regretted afterwards? All the time, of course. I think uh, the correct answer. Yes. You are Freud. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Every day. from time to time. No, all the no, time. And in yeah. fact, yeah. I would say... I would say... Um, ten minutes before the end of each session, I have the thought, what will I regret today <laughs> if I don't bring it up now? Is there... I still have a few minutes left. Um... And, uh, but no. Uh, and if anything goes right, I always think it's the process. If anything goes wrong, of course, it's my fault. I mean, you do feel... I, I Aren't think... you tempted, I must be an evil guy? Because I know this rhetorical figure that you yeah. use now. But I'm so tempted to say the opposite. It's like, no, if anything, if anything goes right, it's me. If something goes wrong, <laughs> sorry, it's you. you know? It sounds so nicer. No, <laughs> I don't think... I, don't, don't, I know, I know, I know, yeah. But it, I think it is. It's like um, recently uh, my daughter broke her finger. You, you, to literally, me, literally. Yeah, literally, yeah. literally. And you think, um, you know, what, I, I don't know what to do. And you go to the emergency room and they know what to do. Sort I don't of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have horrible experiences with emergency. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and I think, you know, you, it's like anything else. You learn things to do. And I, I'm not alone. You know, you're usually supported by someone's GP, by their psychiatrist, by mm-hmm. people don't come just, just without. I wanted to ask you about, I mean, because I feel the relationship between clinical analysis, uh, what I do and what you do, I feel it's quite different. Uh, and um, and uh, I, you know, so many of the people that I know, I'm curious how you came to bring analysis into your theoretical work in the way that you did. I mean, all it, the way back to... It may to, ultra surprise you, but yes. it's, uh, I grew up in, when I did my studies, uh, late 60s, my God, we are old, yes. I am old. Yes, we're the 70s. same age, roughly. Yeah, yeah. ex-Yugoslavia, which was so-so, but still a communist country, but uh, relatively open. By this, I mean that from precisely that period, the Communist Party abdicated no, uh, not real power, but ideology. There was simply no official philosophy. Right. Not only no dialectical materialism, but you're very... So we are very happy because all the influences, at least in my part, Slovenia, were there together, and my path was this one. We, when I was a student, the big conflict in Slovenia was, it's almost the same as today, Frankfurt School versus Heidegger. Right. And this was our... Then the miracle happened for us. This was the formative experience of my uh, uh, youth, uh, the explosion of so-called French structural, structuralism. Lévi-Strauss, Foucault, yes. Lacan, Althusser, all of them. And for us, this was like, we get out of that closed space. And it was a correct experience, but it was incredible how, although they were officially enemies, Frankfurt School and uh, Heideggerians, all of a sudden they felt threatened by this new French way and ferociously attacked it. And then we needed a couple of years to discover Lacan, and precisely because we were nonetheless, we, me and my friend, trained in this German continental philosophy where you see what subjectivity is. That subjectivity is not something that you can reduce to some ideological effect and so on and so on. And here Lacan enters. We immediately discover that against all others, Foucault, Lévi-Strauss, Althusser, who diminished subject to some imaginary effect of some deeper uh, uh, structural processes, mm-hmm. with Lacan you have what was for all others impossible to think. Structure with the subject. Right. The subject is there. Then two things happen. None of them clinical, unfortunately. Uh, the reason we didn't go into clinic, this may surprise you. We missed, in all of Yugoslavia more or less, I simplified, we missed the Freudian moment because first in the 50s there was more or less oppression, psychoanalysis were, was not well viewed. But then, from late 60s, it was opening, and all of a sudden, it was popular to say, no, we have primal skin therapy, transcendental meditation, for, you know. Yes. We jumped, by from we, I mean population or ideological circle, from not yet psychoanalysis directly to leaving it behind. So that's why probably... We missed it. On the other hand, I have honestly to emphasize this. Uh, the first thing that attracted us is 
the use of some Lacanian categories to analyze ideology. There are two things which characterize me and my friends there for already 40 years. A, the use of psychoanalytic categories, especially in their Lacanian version to analyze ideological phenomena, and I think we were productive there. And second, our big obsession, it will sound horrible to say this, but for us, Lacan was a means to read Hegel, to attack the big philosophical question. So this doesn't mean we in any way uh, dismissed actual clinical... We have deep respect for them, and I was even... Have you had analysis? I mean, can I ask you? Oh, you can, because I even write about it. Yes, because I... I, It was a very... It happened with Lacan's nephew, Jacqueline Miller. It's yeah. not a secret because... Yeah. yeah. Had this, maybe two, three things would be interesting for you. It's a very standard story. I had a... Oh, my God, I'm so ashamed to say it. A v- extremely unfortunate love affair. I was absolutely passionately in love. It didn't work. And I was for a week or two practically suicidal. Right. At a certain point... I even, I did all these tricks on myself. I survived so that I, to find a breathing space. Right. I wonder if you found this with some of your patients. I said to myself, okay, let's stop, stop bullshitting. I will kill myself. But before I do it, now it's decided I can go on. <laughs> and then uh, I, desperate, went to Miller. And there he did a nice thing. He saw that I have a demand to be with him in analysis, but he didn't want me to ask. So he simply, all of a sudden, and he did it in a wise way, started to treat me as if he said, wait a minute, it's more comfortable to talk, why don't you lay down there or something? <laughs> you know? He did it in a very nice yes. way. And I must say later it didn't go well, right. because I began to sabotage it, but those crucial... <laughs> I mean, no, no, I was... Uh, first, those uh, couple of weeks... Right. It's something beautiful. You discern the sense of regular rhythm, ritual, yes. for which I have a full respect. You know, I was again in a suicidal mood, but you know how I survived. I told myself, okay, I will kill myself, but not today because tomorrow I have psychoanalysis at four. You know, like, <laughs> and I dragged with this on till, but it took me one month even more, till I said... Okay, wait a minute. We can postpone this indefinitely. Why kill myself at all? Then what I did, this may be, I wonder if this is pretty typical for you. Uh, I know that. I know enough of clinical theory that in this way you can disclose even more about yourself. But my idea was to, to say as little as possible. So, since... Miller, a Lacanian, the sessions were like the usual, if you are very lucky, 10 minutes, otherwise much shorter. I always prepared in detail, invented symptoms, everything in advance. And since Miller guessed it and tried to surprise me by saying, okay, come back in 10 minutes for another session. Uh, you don't get so easy with an obsessional neurotic like me. I even prepared three sessions in advance. Already. You know, never, never did he. And at that point, 
It didn't work because it was Miller too lazy or what, I don't know. But I then started to play games with him. I started to play a game, if I say this, how will he react? And I always guessed it, precisely. There was absolutely no surprise. Again, for some time, this was a, a beautiful game because I didn't feel threatened. My whole strategy was he should learn nothing against me. And this is a nice paradox, a, mention, a notion that I already mentioned here, elaborated by my Austrian friends, uh, interpassivity. When you are active like crazy, not to change something, but to make it sure that nothing will happen. And I think this is my general feature. Why do I talk so much? To make it sure that if I talk all the time, you will not ask me an embarrassing question, just <laughs> to keep things the way they are. And, but at, at a certain point, it stopped functioning. I got, so I definitely still need an analysis or whatever. I, <laughs> I admit it. But just there were other political, uh, institutional uh, plots where I simply, how should I put it, lost my transference or Miller. And then for some time, I wanted to go on in Slovenia. But you know, Slovenia is a small country. Yeah. Everybody knows put it in COVID, all this in these yeah. intellectual psychiatric circles, everybody knows everybody else. Yeah. So uh, you cannot really, and also we have a long tradition in Slovenia. I knew some psychiatrists. I consider this unethical. They like to tell stories, oh, you know, that patient, right. he had, and I simply couldn't gather enough trust in them yeah. to do it. So it took a long time. Now there are some new younger people who are trying to do it clinics also yeah. in Slovenia. Right. But still, basically, I accept it. I'm proud of it. I am basically a philosopher. My problem is there. Right. We, I'm looking at the watch. Uh, we don't I have all the... Yeah, no, this goes, one more yeah, question. Please. I forget. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm it's a question yeah. about your experience. Yeah. In theory. Yeah. Because you mentioned that interpretation, violence, and it so on. It can be, yes. Yeah. You have but to, be so to what extent is the phenomenon of which I spoke, yeah. I wrote, but I'm always suspecting myself that I may be bluffing or whatever. But some psychoanalytic friends do complain to me about so-called uh, uh, growing inefficiency of interpretation. Like this, what I will tell you now is a caricature, no? but the yeah. idea is that in Freud's times you still had this Naivety, like I tell you a dream that you tell me, oh, you wanted to screw your mother. And, oh my yeah, God, really? Yeah, yeah. No. But today, you have a. Everyone many, knows everyone says, like, uh, I use this as a joke, like, yeah. you know, that famous answer of a patient of Freud. I don't know who that woman in my dream is, but it's for sure not my mother. <laughs> and Freud pulls his trick. Isn't it today a typical patient tells you, I don't know who that woman is my dream is, but I'm sure it has something to do with my mother. Yeah. You know, uh, this over-readiness to accept yes. interpretation, which in a way sabotages its efficiency. It, how do you, first, yeah. is this a real problem at it, all? It, it and is. B, how yeah, do you deal yeah. with it? It is a real problem. It is a big problem in the sense that, um, but I think it's, it's been there, it's even in Freud's papers, um, where people come to intellectually 
know what you're going to say or to intellectually even so accept the original. I was well, to, to accept the interpretation, yeah. but that is a defense against the, the, yeah. the kind of deeper acceptance yeah. of the interpretation. And so a lot of time is spent thinking about how the patient is going to hear what you're going to say mm. and thinking about ways of putting it to them, first of all, that it may perhaps surprise them or come at them at, at a different angle. Uh, than something, and also things happen. The, 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 the people bring dreams. People bring their life. Things turn up that uh, are on the side of the analysis. Because, can I tell you? I think then I stop and we pretend that we are in democracy. We can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, would you agree it or not? There was an old Slovene psychoanalyst, more, yeah. who dealt with a friend of mine forty years ago, and. That friend of mine was the worst manipulator, dishonest, and so on. And he was in some kind of trouble because he was arrested by mistake. He was a total conformist at the dissident, had a nervous breakdown, went to this analyst. And then he cheated in my way. Yes. He prepared, invented dreams yeah. to fascinate him. Yes. The dreams were these obvious ones, how he hates his father, he wanted to kill his father. And what the psychoanalyst did I don't know, I want your opinion I know you cannot decide in this abstract way but I find it so ingenious the psychoanalyst immediately saw through him that this guy is bluffing so he did something again I consider ingenious instead of (coughs) sorry telling this to him directly Mm -hmm. he did it in a much more refined way he consciously adopted this most conservative role and started to shout at this hypocritical friend of mine, aren't you ashamed all that your father did to you? How can you dream about killing him? And my friend was so ashamed. I think it was an excellent interpretation. It broke my friend down. This kind of a fake naivety, you know. How can you do this? It's your father. I mean, you, you, you said at the beginning, most of the people who come to see me are in terrible pain. And they're, you know, they're not going to... Are they? Because in they, my circles in Kenya, and this is, this is serious, yeah. something is happening here, I'm critical towards Lacanian community, the way it actually yeah. functions. We have a big fashion of, how do I call it? Should I call it? Going to an analyst as a social fashion. You don't really have problems. And I can tell you a secret from Paris 30 years ago. So that there was even a kind of a anonymous knowledge rumor, and when you asked a friend, my God, I, have, I would like to see an analyst, the idea was that the friend told, asked you, you mean, like, as a social event, or are you real in trouble? If it's for social event, go to this guy, if you are, do you get many of them, or it's not so expanded here, this, you know, no, it, I mean, they it, just want to have an analyst, yeah, so that... Yeah. If you think of the world, you know, the, the, the world that we live in, people, I mean, the people that come to see me are suffering. They are at a crisis in their lives. They are upset about a love affair that's gone wrong. They're gambling addiction. They're crystal meth addiction. You know, all sorts of things. Or, yeah, it is a very serious thing. Yeah, people come. The last question, because I'm intrigued by you. Uh, this is another point where I don't trust myself being yeah. an analyst. Isn't it that, and I don't mean this covering up my brutality or what, but often, with, not only with brutality, even with 
sympathy for the analyst. You should be very, for the analysant, for the patient, you should be very careful, isn't it, that if you have a simplified example, somebody close to paranoia, if you are too friendly with him, he can interpret this in a paranoiac way. Why is he in? So isn't it that a very delicate region here? You should not only be careful of not being too brutal, but also of not be in the wrong way too friendly or too supportive. My view is, you know, is you, you treat people well as they come in. You, you treat people as you would treat someone coming into your home in a kind of formally that you don't know. But I, the thing about paranoia which I wrote about, I mean, I, and is that to me it's about, it links up to th- some things that you talk about, maybe we can talk about during the question, but it's about indifference, it's about the catastrophe of indifference, that people would rather feel betrayed than forgotten. That again, paranoia is actually a defense against Freud says this of being indifferent. Yeah. When he says that the true illness is not paranoia, but it's this total yeah, devastation. It's, it's and the paranoia is already a false attempt yes, to it's, cure. It's a cure. It's a cure against... Uh, the, it's easier to feel betrayed and so, or the thought that someone hates you than the thought yeah. that no one is thinking about me. That's why it's much more worked and so on, yes. of course. But, okay. The um, last, we, sorry. Okay, okay, okay. We go, democracy, I mean, we can do that and then we yeah, can... Yeah. But you know, I'm a Stalinist. Like, we are people's representatives. We know better than people what they really want. Why, you know, it's like, would you interrupt Stalin with the question? Okay, okay. <laughs> but how can, I mean, I, uh, there's a serious question about how you can say, because in a sense, I often think of um, free association as related to freedom of speech, about, free, about thinking that analysis is on the side of... Uh, uh, it's kind of anti-Stalinist in the sense of trying to have Absolutely. That. Not yeah, to be course. serious. Yeah, Absolutely. It is serious. Yes. Okay. Although free association is... Miller did when he guessed that I'm bringing him prepared speeches. No? Yes. When I pretend that, oh, you know, I played it so bad probably when I, with all this fake but spontaneity. why would you do that? I mean, just seriously. Between so that nothing should happen, my God. Right. And did, he, and did he not see that you're... I mean, that's... It him a long time there, and there, so on. Yeah, there are many ways people stop an analysis. Mm-hmm. And that's one. But people yeah. can be boring, too. People can, you know, try and do things to make the analysis know, as deadly what, as possible. What Miller, possum. Miller, when he noticed that I'm giving him prepared speeches, he, I think, said something which I think in some sense was correct. He told me, I know you're preparing everything. Yes. But it still functions as a free association and so on. No matter how much you plan it, you and so on, it can be treated as... Because I don't think that real free association in this absolute sense, now I just think, uh, takes place. It's not as simple as that. No, it isn't as simple as that. Now really, the people. Is there a microphone somewhere? Is there... And questions, if people can put their hands up if they have some questions. There's a woman there back near the camera. And then we'll take that one next. Um, I was wanting to ask a question about um, commodification because it struck me that when you were talking about identity politics and the problem of I feel and the problem of equivalences and how there's um, no apparent truth in that, uh, that sense of I feel being equal amongst everyone. 
Although, of course, philosophically, truth is always a bit of a sticky problem. Um, I wondered how both of you feel about the idea that sexual relationships and also sexual identities, to a certain extent, have become very commodified. Um, and that commodification money has, has started to structure those relationships in late-stage capitalism. You, no, I will try, pray to God, that I will succeed to give short answers. Uh, I cannot answer your question in detail, no, but I want to make one point because I think it was a very pertinent question, that about commodification and so on. The tragedy is that many critics of patriarchy fall into this trap that what they propose as the totally politically correct sex, where, you know, there is no mani seductive manipulation and so on, it comes pretty close to a total commodification. I am here more of I think that in, sorry, I still use this term, in authentic erotic tension, there is an irreducible violence, risk, and so on and so on. The only way to make it without harassment is totally to objectify it. I write down my interests, yours, and so on and so on. And even some American feminists, I'm not saying even, my God, I'm not patronizing them. Some of them are very intelligent and notice this, how a certain style of this postmodern open sex, whatever, comes very close to radical commodification. In the sense that, you know, like, not to be oppressive, I should show my cards, open myself to it, you open yourself, then practically we conclude a deal. It's basically the only sex without violence and harassment is a purely contractual sex. So I think that this is part of uh, authentic uh, sexual tension that one of the partners where they are flirting, at a certain point you have to take a risk. You do a gesture where you take a risk. Either it will be accepted or it will be rejected as harassing, intrusive, and so on and so on. So... Uh, this is how I read your question. The tragedy is not that we have, on the one hand, total political correctness, on the other hand, commodification. The points where the two come uncannily close in their form. I mean, the only thing I would add is I, I think of the problem slightly differently, increasingly from a clinical point of view, which is that more and more I see people, if you think of Facebook, Instagram, all the 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 way that people, that people have a public self and then they have a public private self which it, they put out and then they have a private private self um, that, and so that it, people can be quite confusing in, in a way perhaps that they weren't before uh, uh, and I think that, that creates all kinds of levels of, of difficulty right this is now. a very nice point from my abstract that you made because I also think that that's why uh, putting your images naked, if you want, on Facebook is not the same as the classic exhibitionism. Classic exhibitionism, you know, the proverbial, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really 
public. But then uh, putting your Im- even if they are seen by millions, it's yes. still private public space. It's something different. Yes. That's why uh, I think that when people complain that today with our media uh, 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 privacy is disappearing, I'm not so sure. I think that maybe an authentic public space is disappearing and public space is more and more becoming this private public space. You know, like, for example, I was shocked. You remember the German foreign minister, Joschka Fischer, when he wrote a book and... I was so disgusted, instead of talking about serious political stuff, it was all report about his primate, private traumas, how he lost weight, and so on and so on. <laughs> you know, I find this so disgusting, this making a political statement as a personal revelation and so on. Maybe, that's my risk, we need in a good sense more alienation. Like, to speak in public about public issues, not about... I stop, I'm sorry. There is a question here, yeah. Ah, it's you. (laughs) (laughs) We live in a time of a lot of um, division in our public world, in our social world, in our political world, our economic world. And I was just wondering, in your clinical practice, did you see any of this coming? Did you see as people brought kind of bits of their unconscious in their dreams and their lives and things as they brought it into your uh, practice? Did you see any of this coming? Were you not surprised when, it, when all the sort of things we're seeing in the wider world happened? Did, was there any intimations of this but before? What sort of things are you thinking about? I mean, is there something? I, um, the uh, kind of, it's more acceptable for a lot of people to be a bit racist, homophobic. Just at the same time as we're having more liberalism, we're seeing a lot more racism again, the whole post-Obama era in the yeah. States, that kind of thing. It's, it's interesting because, in fact, one of the things we, we could talk about for a moment now is I sometimes feel that my work is people will talk about general things, but in clinical analysis you go from the general to the specific, from talking about fathers to that person's father. And often in politics we'll go from the specific to a kind of larger generalization in trying to make a... Uh, an, an analysis. So in that way, I, I don't think I had any particular view in that. And, and maybe we could talk about this, because uh, your use of analytic concepts, and we haven't talked about things like Trump, we haven't talked about Brexit, and there are things that we could talk about maybe in the no, little bit that we have left. I have a good example here. Uh, I, some of my American friends... Lacanians, mostly, but also gen psychoanalysts, they're doing something, a very honest, uh, open thing. They have links in China, People's Republic, and they are trying to develop psychoanalysis there. So they don't have first-hand experience. They just, how do you call it, when you're an analyst, you report to someone. Yes. Yeah. They play that role, and now maybe this approaches to what you just said. They told me that even now, 50 years afterwards, they were shocked about how often, almost as a rule, all these apparently private traumas echo the shock of cultural revolution. How, as a kind of a, I don't like to use these pseudo terms, but let's say yeah. absolute collective trauma of cultural revolution and those crazy rules, it's still absolutely there as a background without which you cannot really understand not even all these uh, psychic traumas of people there and so on and so on. 
treats a nice example. I mean, the one thing I would say, which I don't know if people in the audience think, but um, you, know, you saw this with the whole thing in Las Vegas, the shooting, and saying that we can't talk about it now. But it kind of um, ways, and, and the way we began this evening talking about feeling, the way people block thinking. Uh, and it seems that more and more with um, social media, people are transmitting, they're broadcasting, but they're not thinking. And in fact, they use, they want to give a message about who they are. They give a performance increasingly. And that has felt like it's kind of snowballed. Uh, or even things like Trump, where I feel um, what's interesting is not the politics, but is much more a kind of uh, psychical imperialism, the way he's in people's minds and the way that it feels increasingly that what um, it used to be that you wanted to be in particular people's minds and now it's to be in the most people's minds all the time everywhere. I mean, that's what I feel he's, you know, that we think about him and talk about him so much. Um, but is, is there anything specific? I, I haven't seen anything like that. Is there another question? Is there another hand? Yep. Hi. Um, this question is for both of you, and it sort of relates to the idea that we should all be normative in some sense. Um, so some people would argue that CBT looks at thinking styles as a thing that needs to be changed and corrected and brought back to the norm. Um, so would you sort of say that in psychodynamic um, it's in the psychodynamic approach, we look at sort of non-heteronormativity as something that needs to be changed and again brought back to the supposed norm. It's like blind men guiding a blind man. <laughs> okay, I can, but then you reflect, you believe yeah, a sorry, deeper I, I, answer. I'm not sure I understand the question. Yeah. If I got it correctly, uh, I think that it's not really direct answer to your question, but more the background that one big lesson from, still actual from Freud, and I wonder if you would agree, is that we should drop this topic popular from uh, 60s sexual revolution that sexuality is, some, sexuality is some kind of free reservoir, unconscious, then uh, oppressed by violent normativity, norms, and so on. Today, I think, that's why we get all this self-sabotage, guilt feelings, and so on. You know, the problem is not, as neoconservatives claim, that we are just wild hedonists, we don't have norms. We have... Unconscious norms may be stronger than ever. The pathology today is almost the opposite of the classical one. It's, I feel free, consumerist, I do orgies, whatever. But then my unconscious can be very conservative, some hidden, oppressed norms, and so on and so on. So that uh, don't simply identify the unconscious with some liberating energy that has to be set free and so on and so on. Again, this is for me a much more interesting theoretically, practically, politically uh, situation where, you know, you penetrate a little bit deeper into the unconscious, you don't get some free-floating energy. You get extremely oppressive norms and so on and so on. And that's maybe what is one of the possible 
readings of uh, today's uh, neoconservatives and so on. Although I think that there the situation is much more paradoxical. Like take, you mentioned the guy, I didn't pronounce this obscene name, Donald Trump, you know. Just imagine the paradox, a guy who flirts at least with neocons, moral revival, it's obviously an extremely obscene, lewd, perverted guy and so on and so on. Now, how can this happen? The official version is, and there is some truth to it, that conservative Americans, true fundamentalists, they know how Trump is. And I often in debate with them, some stupid public uh, uh, debate, got this answer. Don't mention Trump's private life. We know what he is. But nonetheless, he promised certain things like limiting abortion and so on and so on. And that's what really interests us. We are ready to talk. But I think this is a way too simple explanation. I think that in a way, they identify precisely with this Trump's hypocritical inconsistency. You know, you pretend to be ethical neocon, but you are really an obscene guy, and so on and so on. This is because this is the big tragedy with Trump. The, the, the more he is caught with his pants down, you know, like saying something stupid, obscene, instead of ruining him, it, it almost helps him. You know, here psychoanalysis is needed. Here you can see how the process of identification is much more subtle. What if you don't identify with the ideal image of a person, but precisely with what you perceive as the dirty, hidden, private side, and so on, and, and, and so on, and so on. So, with considering a normativity, if you mean any type of sexual normativity, and so on, I don't think that... Uh, an authentic psychoanalysis is doing it in the sense that you presuppose a certain model uh, and so on and so on. We just, again, psychoanalysis would tell us this. First, that especially to be attentive to hidden normativity precisely from those who pretend to fight against normativity and so on and so on. For example, many gay theorists, and they admitted this to me, just propose a different normativity, that uh, gay people have a normative superiority over us who considered to patriarchal ruling ideology. So for them, it's not just we have the right to be gay, but in their reconstruction of psychic process, of how subjectivity emerges, there is, if I may put it in these terms, some ontological even priority of being gay. Something is visible there in sexuality which gets oppressed in normal heterosexuality. So that would be my basic answer. Look for normativity, especially with those who claim, oh, we are just violating norms and, no? We have time for one or two more questions. There's some up in the back. Hi, my question is for Stephen. Um, 
I was wondering more because you work into the mental, you know, into the mental health in Portavistock in London, um, the Porter Clinic. Um, I was wondering why there is um, less, I don't know, like less of psychoanalysts giving care into the people that is requiring the mental health um, services from the NHS rather than getting the CVT practices. I don't know if you know anything about it. I think having the psychoanalyst would be a more beneficial thing for most of the patients. I know because I've been through the loophole, it took me to start studying psychology so that my own teacher told me when I was in conversation with him, you're failing to the CVT analyst to say that you have been, you ha you're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder from sexual abuse. That's the they said in the NHS everything works like a code. So if you're failing to say that code, that's where they give you CVT after CVT after CVT. So, and in my experience, I have seen a lot of patients that they got referred to CVT for things that in psychoanalysis which be resolved, which even if the pace is lower, that in, in a psychoanalytic space, I know because I took 10 years of a Lacanian therapist, things would be resolved in a much better place. I was a suicidal intake in my country, and, and I've been, so I see most, a lot of cases, and I don't understand what's the process with the NHS. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay. This one is definitely for you, right? Yeah, it's a very, it's a very complicated, and I, I worked, I stopped working at the Portman many years ago, and uh, I think, but I think it's a very complicated question about the resources that are available. Um, and I, what I find increasingly is that there are people who have had different kinds of treatment and feel hurt if they haven't been referred to the most appropriate treatment that's right for them. Um, you know, I, that's all I can say right now. Uh, can I just add something? Else? Not to this, to? Uh, just an important point it came to me now with getting old senile belated about that uh, question about normativity. You know, where things go really interesting. You think in many communities departments, uh, classes, uh, in school classes, and so on, there is a certain explicit normativity. But when you get to know that circle, you discover that there is a deeper normativity which tells you how to violate and in what way some explicit norms. Like there are departments where to be University, where to be really accepted, you have to violate certain rules, make fun of certain professors, and so on. And that's what interests me so much, how the very violation of norms is regulated by another deeper level of normativity. That's it. <laughs> One last question, because we're, we're at time. Yeah, please. Do you see a point? Um, yeah. This is a bit of a funny one. Um, What's clear tonight is one of you is a clinician and one of you is a philosopher slash theorist. I'm afraid I, I, I'm probably not giving a very clear description. But what was very interesting is when you described your own analysis, you described the way in which you sabotaged it. And it, what was clear was a kind of terror of psychoanalysis. So you can 
break down a, a lot of the theory about Freud and the history and the philosophy and everything else. But next to you is very quietly an actual clinician. And what really strikes me about tonight is something about why is psychoanalysis so unpopular, so uh, out of, well, demodé, to use a, you know, for a simple word, and why is it something about it being so scary? And what actually happens in psychoanalysis? Because what we've heard from Mr. Gross is that what actually happens is he listens very quietly and thinks very carefully about what is going on, what the patient is saying or what the patient is not saying, and he's trying to work with something. And how is it that that has become so terrifying and so unpopular? It's an, if I may be, yeah. it's an extremely yeah. important and crucial question. The only thing I can say, and I hope you will agree, is that my sabotaging it and so on was really, and not in some stupid masochist sense, and that where my analyst, I think, failed, a desperate attempt like break this defense of mine, do something, and so on. I here can say absolutely sincerely that all that, and you detected it totally correctly, uh, all that sabotaging, being afraid, traumatized, even by psychoanalysis, my God, it means that I take it extremely seriously. It's much more authentic this than this, what we mentioned, social psychoanalysis. Yeah. You go there to chat and so on and so on. And it's the crucial question that you approach there of why, what kind of defense is this of, because as you pointed out, you know, already around 1910 or when, it was fashionable to say Freud is demodé and so on. It's almost from the beginning, but why it persists and it goes on and on and on. And yes, it's a crucial question. I think that precisely in our permissive mediatic culture and so on and so on. Look, if you can, if you just imagine an absolute Oh, you know why I like about psychoanalysis? Precisely this asymmetrical duality that, you know, I was really here almost like a kind of a slightly crazy patient. Even here, you were the analyst. And what humanist liberals are bothered is this obvious asymmetry. That's why it's crucial, the very material disposition of analysts. It's not this human touch, we sincerely... No, I don't look at you. You sit at my side, it's a radical asymmetry. And for this, it's not because it's an oppressive but state where you are the master. It's something much more subtle. Psychoanalyst is not a normative master. But I try to do this. There is a deeper sense of the master where master is not knowing better than me what I want, but I'm caught in my everyday stupid problems and the master's message is you can do, you can make a step further. It's just this challenge. As it were, a true master solicits you to be more free. To be, you know, and this is, there is something so subtle going on here, which is simply, again, less and less present in our falsely egalitarian society. It's an excellent point that you made. It's a very good question. I, I It's a very good question because, especially right now, uh, the aim of analysis, I, I think that the 
all the, so many of the arguments against Freud or psychoanalysis are actually against psychoanalytic thinking. And what is psychoanalytic thinking? But it's really trying to get people to look at the full range of meanings, their unconscious motivations, hidden desires, why we do the things that we do. And it's such an important thing to be doing, particularly at this time right now. And I think I do that, try to do that with my patients in my clinical setting. I think Slapa does that in his work. And, um, but that's the aim of, of uh, clinical analysis. I think we should probably stop there. I think that's the... Thank you so much for your questions.